At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Hardwood Handicappers, VEASAN's premier NBA betting podcast. Here's your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. What's up, everybody? Welcome in another edition, Hardwood Handicappers early week episode. we got a lot to get into, uh, only though we are six days into the season, but a lot to glean from the early action in the association, we have a good episode on tap. Not only do we have our hardwood headlines, as we usually do, but coming up a little bit later, we're going to talk a little bit about home, home court advantage, uh, where we're at at this point, uh, and the fact that we are starting to follow in the footsteps of last season when it came to home court, really not being worth that much, and so far not being worth anything. Also have a lot to get to with some of these hot starts. I guess you call them hot and cold. We're going to talk about some sustainable starts and whether or not teams that have gotten off to good or poor starts, something that we can take from them and move forward with, and whether those things are sustainable and have some substance to them. But let's start the show as we always do with some headlines in the world of the NBA. Uh, We do have big news coming out of New Orleans, and that's where we're going to start. Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram uh, injured in their loss to the Utah Jazz over the weekend. Williamson officially questionable to play against Dallas on Tuesday, and actually just minutes before we came on the air here uh, to record the podcast, Brandon Ingram was placed in concussion protocol. He suffered a head injury. He's actually a little bit of friendly fire going up for a loose ball in the air, gets smacked in the face, leaves that game, only plays 11 minutes, and of course uh, does not come back. Zion Williamson leaves that game late in the fourth quarter. I guess we'll call it early, actually. 8.01 left to go in the fourth quarter in a game that finished in overtime. Took a really hard fall in the fourth when going up in transition, getting blocked by Clarkson. So, uh, there's a lot of injuries here to monitor for New Orleans as we move forward, and it's not just those two either. Herb Jones actually had to have his knee tested. Uh, it didn't have any structural damage to it, went through an MRI as well. Uh, but we have three of what I would argue, and I think a lot of people, at least for the very uh, top two guys, Williamson and Ingram, uh, but I think three of the most viable players and most vital players, I should say, for the New Orleans Pelicans uh, are in question as we move forward here. Now, officially in concussion protocol, Brandon Ingram, I was going through some of the uh, official Uh, documentary or documents, I should say, uh, from the NBA when it came to concussion protocol. And it does say uh, that about 24 hours after being placed in concussion protocol, he has to have another 24 hours of observation. 
Uh, so it does not look like Ingram is going to be on the floor when the Pelicans play host to the Mavericks. And whether or not Williamson is going to be available is a question, as um, it has already been stated, he is officially questionable for the game. So what does this mean moving forward? Really not much. Uh, I just think it's obviously something worth monitoring. And what the market's going to do with this game on Tuesday is going to be pretty interesting, as New Orleans is at home. And I think it'll give us a good sense, and we're going to talk more about this coming up in a couple of minutes. It'll give us a good sense of what the market is doing with this home court, uh, because you would think, even with the question, the looming specter of whether or not Zion Williamson is going to play, uh, if he doesn't and Ingram's not available and Jones isn't available, I would expect that the Dallas Mavericks going to be favored in this game. Uh, but kind of hedging your bet if you're the market and hanging up New Orleans minus one or one and a half, something I'd probably expect here. Uh, but what they uh, want to do, the odds makers, that is, with this game will be fascinating to track. And for the rest of the schedule going forward, because these do have the chance to potentially linger a little bit. They're not overly serious, but if Williamson misses a game or two with this hip issue that he's dealing with after a really hard fall, uh, if Ingram's going to be in concussion protocol for multiple days, or if Herb Jones is going to rest this knee for a while, they do get Dallas at home Tuesday. Uh, and then they have go out west to a three-game West Coast trip, Phoenix, L.A., and L.A., uh, the Clippers and Lakers, respectively. But they don't play again until Friday. So you get to play Tuesday. You're off Wednesday, Thursday before you start on that road trip on Friday. Uh, just venturing a guess here, I would say if you're New Orleans, you don't want to push the issue. And maybe we see pretty much all three of them getting shelved in this game Tuesday against the Mavericks. No need to rush it back. You have an important West Coast trip coming up, especially when it comes to the grand scheme of things in the Western Conference. I would expect that maybe they get pretty cautious with the way that they're going to handle the injuries with Williamson Ingram and Herb Jones. But again, very important. And for a guy like Williamson, who has had this injury history about him, and it hasn't been a hip issue that has plagued him for a while, but still something to monitor. And I would assume something that the Pelicans are going to keep pretty tight uh, to the vest. And we should also say really quickly uh, that New Orleans, uh, they have been everything that we expected them to be at the beginning of the season. I wrote in the NBA guide, uh, about New Orleans and how ultimately where the market had them, uh, I leaned toward the under for New Orleans when it came to their win total. Uh, and in the pecking order of the Western Conference, still had some space between them and the rest of the teams uh, that were considered championship contenders. But their strengths are absolutely their strengths. Uh, through three games, lead the league in offensive rebounding rate. They have grabbed 39.7% of their missed attempts. Uh, they are offensive rating right now in non-garbage time minutes, 120.4, the best offensive rate or third best offensive rating in the NBA. If we're talking about half-court possessions, half-court offense has actually kind of been a scuffle so far. Uh, offensive rating in 92.6. You want to see that get a little bit better. But what they're doing, and which is working, uh, they're just grabbing offensive boards and getting pushbacks. While they only rank at this point of the early season, a ranking doesn't really mean much, but it gives you an idea. 18th and half-court offense, uh, their play, their putback numbers are incredible. Uh, according to Clean in the Glass, points per miss, 36.7, second highest rate through three games. The plays per miss, 30. Uh, that is first so far. And uh, top half of the league in terms of efficiency on putback plays. This is a team that we kind of know exactly what they're going to be. Uh, but the half-court offense can get a little bit better. Because, again, some of the bigger teams in which you are not able to attack the offensive glass, you're going to have to be able to execute in half-court. And so far, it has been a little bit of a scuffle. And in transition, too, uh, they are an elite transition unit, kind of as we expected as well. Uh, so far, 8.2 points added per 100 possessions. In transition offense, that is the best rate in uh, the NBA up to this point. Offensive rating 154.3, the second best efficiency mark in transition. So they're checking all the boxes on offense. I, I am really intrigued as we move forward to see what this defense looks like for New Orleans because that was kind of my whole 
uh, trepidation with the Pelicans. And the offense rating's been fine, 108.6. The larger the sample size, obviously, the more we're going to learn. And let's be somewhat frank. I mean, when you look at the three opponents, uh, Utah, Charlotte, Brooklyn, I think one would argue, hey, those are all some elite offensive teams. Brooklyn in its first game, essentially after a summer of turmoil and a terrible matchup for them, I guess we can give them some credit, Pelicans it is, to holding them to an offensive rating of 105.4, but I don't want to pull out a a whole lot from that. Charlotte missing LaMelo Ball, don't want to take a whole lot out of that. And Utah, I mean, they were missing the Pelicans, Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram in this game, but still Utah 113 was their offensive rating in that win on Sunday. That is something to kind of circle as you move forward with the Pelicans and if their defense is going to be what I expect the weak link. And I didn't expect it to be abhorrent by any stretch. Uh, That's the second time I've used that word today. The other time I was talking about the Bulls offense. Uh, But I don't expect it to be terrible by any stretch, but I did expect it to right in the bottom half of the league, closer to 20 than it would be to 10. We'll put it that way. And uh, so far, they have passed all of their tests defensively, but only three games. So we'll see how this looks going forward over a large sample size and over the course of a tough road trip as well against the Suns, Clippers, and Lakers. Suns and Clippers a little bit more so than the Lakers, who we'll get to uh, momentarily. Other headline, I guess this is kind of a headline. I wanted to just mention this very quickly. Uh, Dante DiVincenzo, um, I don't know who was watching on Sunday, but an incredible comeback from the Kings was snuffed out against the Golden State Warriors. DiVincenzo is going to miss about a week. He's going to be reevaluated, as Steve Kerr told the media earlier today. Uh, He's got a hamstring issue on a closeout. He left, and it looked like he came down weird on the the leg, came up immediately uh, hobbled left the game, didn't come back. Not a massive loss for the Golden State Warriors. He's only averaging five points per game. He hasn't really been a net positive for them up to this point either. So not going to shift the power rating in any way, shape, or form. But for those who are just monitoring a lot of these injuries, uh, very much worth uh, noting that Dante DiVincenzo is going to be out for a week for the Golden State Warriors. And the other news that comes from the weekend, this is the big news, and it kind of ties in nicely to what we're going to talk about with some hot starts and cold starts in the NBA. and. Um, the sustenance and the substance behind them. Uh, But Russell Westbrook, I have very much been in the camp that Russell Westbrook and the blame that he's received, while valid to a certain extent, it is not all the problems uh, that the Los Angeles Lakers have to deal with, right? It's not all on Russell Westbrook's shoulders. Uh, Having said that, after his performance in the loss to Portland, yeah, it's um, there's probably got to be something that's done here. And something was done, at least, in the loss to Portland. And that's what our headline is here. Westbrook was benched in the loss to Portland for those who missed it. Uh, Lakers led 102-101, to 31.3 left to go on the clock. Westbrook has the ball in his hands, and he's coming up the floor. And with 17 seconds left on the shot clock, again, the Lakers, his team, leading by a point with uh, just about 30 seconds left in the game, he decides to step into a mid-range shot, a classic Westbrook mid-ranger, uh, and bricks it off the side of the rim. The Portland Trailblazers, of course, rebound, and the rest is history. They end up losing that game. Uh, but to take that shot f- is mind-boggling. As you can tell, I'm kind of sh- searching for the words there. Uh, it's mind-boggling when you look at the situation. You have the one-point lead. Westbrook, after the game, stated that he was going for a two-for-one, uh, but you don't do that if you have the lead, right? You go for a two-for-one if you're down by a point because you want the extra possession on the back end, but if you're up by one, you want to bleed that clock out and have an opportunity at a bucket and give the Portland Trailblazers, should you either A, get the bucket, or B, miss the fewest amount of seconds possible to respond. And you even see it, and this is where it's kind of getting to be a problem for the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, you saw the 
irritation, uh, outward irritation from LeBron James, who was barely across half court. Anthony Davis was barely across half court at the time. He was irritated, to say the least, LeBron, and he has been expressing this quite a bit. But it does seem that this is something that is untenable for the Los Angeles Lakers. Westbrook, he has his moments. He has been playing all right on the defensive end. Uh, The highlights for him on that end of the floor, of course, were uh, the Clippers game where he was fronting Kawhi Leonard and not allowing them to post him up. And there were some really good moments in that game. And I think he had five steals in that game. But so far, uh, when it comes to the offensive numbers, Westbrook has been just as bad. Ham, after that moment, benched him for the final three possessions. And uh, I think as we kind of look at this, this is the time where you start to make a move here. And if Westbrook wants to pull the card of, hey, man, look, this is the reason I hurt my hamstring because I was coming off the bench, as he stated to the media right before the season began, then that's on him. But if you're looking at some of these numbers, this is from Sam Quinn of CBS Sports about that game against the Portland Trailblazers. Every Lakers starter had a positive point differential, except for Russell Westbrook. He was minus four. Lakers starters, not named Russell Westbrook, Shot 29 of 55 from the field in that game, 52.7%. Westbrook, 4 of 15. That's 26.7%. And as Quinn notes, it's time to bring him off of the bench. As I mentioned, I was camped, not just Russ for a while, uh, but it does seem like this is the turning point here for the Lakers. And Darvin Ham has to do something because just think about this, too. It's not even just the offense. And Jovan Buha, who writes for The Athletic, covers the Los Angeles Lakers, does an awesome job. I've reached out to him, see if we can get him on at some point, either this week or next week when it comes to this whole situation around Los Angeles, it's not just the offensive numbers for Russell Westbrook. Uh, Opposing teams are now throwing their centers on Westbrook and just leaving him alone. In that possession at the end of that game that I mentioned, which he dribbles up into a mid-range jumper, the reason why he dribbles up into a mid-range jumper is because Yusuf Nurkic is essentially on the block covering him or guarding him, but allowing him all of that space. They want him to shoot threes. They want him to step into these mid-range shots, and it is working, and he is... For some reason, I guess it's Russell Westbrook and uh, ego is hard when you're a player of his level, especially when you're as good as he was, uh, is feeding into it when he's taking some of these shots and it's not really working. And on the flip side of it, it's not just that. It is the fact that teams now, when they're putting their centers on Russell Westbrook, these centers can help off with ease and clog the lane. Nurkic did it multiple times in that game where he was playing off very close, essentially in the paint and being to help and go after Anthony Davis. There was a key moment in the game where I think it was about three minutes left to go, and, and Buha points this out in his article in The Athletic, in which Anthony Davis goes on a roll into the paint, and Nurkic is just standing there, able to catch him. Why? Because he's playing off Russell Westbrook, who gets the ball subsequently and bricks a three-point shot from the left wing. So this offense, the, his personal shooting numbers are not playing very well, obviously. His presence on the court is mucking up their entire offense. If you're Darvin Ham there seems to be a pretty simple explanation here, and it is you got to get him out of there. You can build some bench units around him. You can get a little bit more athletic, get a little bit more transition heavy. They've been kind of a quick-paced team so far to this point of the season and through these three games. The first two games, uh, their transition frequency numbers were super high, well over 20%. Again, in this game, it wasn't as high, but 17.6% of their possessions against the Portland Trailblazers uh, started with a transition play. They haven't been overly efficient in transition, which is a little bit of an issue because if you're going to get out and run because your half-court offense stinks, you want to be able to uh, at least successfully do it. And so far through these first three games, Lakers have the second highest transition frequency rate in the NBA. So it speaks to what they're trying to do. But this has been a problem. And it stinks because this there's like there's like this really 
odd vibe around the team, but it's also negating what has been some relatively solid play from the Lakers on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, they have been playing a really solid brand. Right now, they're only giving up 105.4 points per 100 possessions in non-garbage time minutes. It's the fourth best uh, defensive rating in the NBA right now. The problem is, despite having the fourth best defensive rating in the NBA, according to Cleaning the Glass, they are getting outscored by 8.6 points per 100 possession because so far they are well under 100 points per 100 possession. So as we move forward, uh, again, the rest of their schedule is we kind of look at what the Lakers are going to be here. They play at Denver, at Minnesota, home versus Denver, and home versus New Orleans. If they don't make a change here soon, I mean, this is a team that's staring 0-7 in the face potentially at the start of the year. It'll be interesting to see if Ham kind of has the uh, the onions at this point to bench Westbrook, but after he was officially benched at the end of that game, I would say it's hard to kind of come back from this, especially when every single number is screaming at you to get rid of this, to get, get, to get this guy at least off the floor with your main unit. So that goes through the headlines. Uh, not much else outside of that when it comes to the headlines so far. I mean, there's a couple more, but it affects some of the games today. I like we're getting Caleb Martin, uh, who's going to get benched for a game after his fight with Toronto Raptors. Uh, but of course, by the time you listen to this podcast, it won't really matter. So we'll take a break here on the other side. Uh, let's get to our main topics of the day, including home teams. How about this? 14, 24 and five against the spread. Median result of 0.0, folks, and an average net rating in non-garbage time of negative 0.4 points. What does it all mean? We discuss on the other side of Harvard Handicappers. Are you ready to become a winning sports better? Schedule a call with SBIA to find out how their service can make you a long-term winning player. They've developed an innovative algorithm that maximizes units return, and they are so confident in their system that they offer a money-back guarantee. Sign up by October 31st and get their NBA package at no cost until they reach 10 net units. They treat sports betting like a business. So if you want to learn how to make your sports betting dreams a reality, visit them at SBIA1.com and check them out on social media at SBIA Sports. All right, so let's get to some of our main topics coming out of the break here when we look at everything going on in the association through the early portion of the league schedule. Uh, super early portion of the league schedule, obviously. We're only at, I think, what are we talking about here? My math is terrible. 43 games, uh, minuscule portion of what we're going to see in terms of the regular season. But there are some takeaways. And the first thing that I wanted to hit on before we get to some of our teams that are going to go into the magnifying glass with some of their starts is home court advantage. Because while it's a small sample size, it builds on a lot of what we saw last year in the NBA regular season. So through six days to reiterate, home teams, 21 and 22 straight up, 14, 24 and five against the spread. So when I say median result too, by the way, median result is a really good way uh, that I was taught by Jeff Vogel, our former colleague over at VSIN, to measure home court as opposed to an average result. So the median result gives you the most frequent result for these teams. And so when you're looking at it overall, uh, you're seeing a median result to 0.0. Uh, essentially home that that's when you're looking at it for home teams, I should say uh, these home teams have been at a small, I guess you call it disadvantage uh, non-garbage time average net rating, according to cleaning the glass negative 0.4. I wrote about this a little bit in today's column, but I kind of wanted to expand on it a bit on the podcast, which is first and foremost, look, we're not going to start to hand out road court advantage to teams, right? Like you're not going to shade the uh, line a half point in favor of the road teams, because what we've seen up to this point, and because we're tracking the median result and the median result is telling a zero, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're saying that home court is worth nothing. I would venture a guess as the sample size expands, home court is going to start to prove its worth. But it, this conversation is worth having because it's not going to be worth as much as it once was. Last season, 
after an entire regular season of NBA action. Again, stress regular season. Uh, home court came out to be 1.7 points or worth 1.7 points. If you looked at it from the efficiency numbers, if you looked at it from the median result, that's where we came out to be when it came to home court. And a lot of people initially, and it's the same thing with the NFL at times, or it was, a lot of people expect that home court is worth about three points. There are some who think teams like Utah, Denver, right, those that play at altitude that have an inherent home court advantage, that their home court should be worth nearly four. Uh, that is not the case anymore. And I would love to dive a little bit more to, into this in terms of talking to people around these teams and whatnot. And maybe it's a project. that will be fun. Um, as to why this is the case, because these teams are still getting relatively decent turnouts. I think at the very core of this, it's just kind of what we've spoken out for a really long time, which is one, these players are used to travel at this point right now. And how they travel is not like you or I. They're not going through, right? They're not going through security and all those things. They're not getting Spirit Airlines. They're not getting jammed in some of these tubes. And of course, being shuffled back and forth. Um, right after a game, it's a lot more luxurious in terms of the travel. They have a lot of people involved that really have everything down to the last minute detail set up, whether it's meals, sleeping, all sort of things. And sure, there's some players that deviate from that, but travel is a lot easier than it's ever been. Playing in these environments is not, I would say, I guess, as intimidating as it once was. Think about these guys. I mean, they play AAU basketball from a young age. They're used to traveling. They're used to playing in front of foreign, uh, like foreign crowds. It's something that they've dealt with since a very early portion of their basketball careers, traveling just isn't the, what it used to be. And by, by the way, the NBA is hardly the only sport that is dealing with this. We have this conversation all the time in the NFL. So what this conversation here is, is just if you're out there making your own numbers or if you're looking at some of these lines and evaluating where these lines are at and how the market is rating some of these teams – it is worth noting that when you want to find the market rating on some of these squads and you want to say, for example, here today, uh, just to use this, right, the uh, Orlando Magic are playing the New York Knicks. The Knicks right now will call it as a seven and a half point favorite. So if we want to use one and a half, which I think it's what I've been rolling with here for home court early, even with the early returns being it worth nothing, um, because that's what it was last year. So if you're rolling with one and a half as your home court advantage, well, then the market's telling you the Knicks are six points better than the Orlando Magic, as opposed to saying that the Knicks are four and a half points better if we're using the traditional three. So that's just something to keep in mind. When you look at some of these numbers and you see that the Utah Jazz, for example, today are a two and a half point road favorite against the Houston Rockets, a lot of people might look at that and go, wow, that's a really big role reversal for a Jazz team who, yes, they're off to a hot start, but should they be road favorites over everybody? Well, for reusing one and a half for home court, it just tells you that they're only about a point better, or like about, uh, what are we talking about here? Um, I'm terrible at math. Four points better than the Houston Rockets. Well, that gives you an idea of what you're looking at and going, actually, that is somewhat, like, even with what just one and a half, it's kind of a shocking thing given where the Jazz were at the start of the year, but it's a good way to evaluate a lot of these teams, but it gives you some perspective. Home court's not what it was, so if you're using it to evaluate some of these squads, just keep that in mind when you're looking at it from the big picture for the NBA uh, up to this point. So again, we're going to keep track of it. I got a Google doc. I'm actually, I, I'm going to put it up uh, on the Twitter account too. Um, that has like the tracking and the running of home court so far after I plug in some of the results. So I'll share that. So a lot of people can look at it. Uh, if you want to just track it, I won't tweet it out every single day, uh, but if you want, it's an open doc and I'll tweet it out and you can check it out as it goes along. It includes all the plays too and tracking and whatnot uh, in terms of the record for the plays. So with that, we talked about the Utah Jazz. Let's talk about some of these teams that are off to some uh, some starts, we'll call them, be it hot or be it cold. And let's talk about the sustainability of those starts. And the Jazz is the team that we have to start with, right? 
A lot of people shocked by the way that the Jazz have started the season so far. 3-0 straight up, 3-0 against the spread. As I mentioned, coming off of the dramatic victory over the New Orleans Pelicans in overtime. And I would very much stress, and this is actually why, so you'll know whether I'm right or wrong by the time maybe you listen to this on Wednesday. I am on Houston today against the Utah Jazz because I do think that we're maybe reading a little bit too much into this for Utah up to this point in terms of the hot start. Um, Just look at, for example, their win over New Orleans. Yes, they beat the New Orleans Pelicans in overtime. However, uh, they beat the New Orleans Pelicans with Brandon Ingram playing 11 minutes, Zion Williamson getting knocked out of a game that had eight minutes left to go in the fourth quarter that eventually went to overtime, and Herb Jones banged up as well. I, like, just that's one result, but that's not one result that you really want to buy into a whole bunch. And also, while Lowry Markinen has been off to a tremendous start in terms of his scoring, averaging 24 points per game, uh, if your leading scorer is Lowry Markinen at 24 points per game, I would think that that paints a picture of unsustainability for the Utah Jazz. I'm just going to go out there on a limb and say that's not going to be something that they can continue to do. And one thing that stuck out to me when evaluating a lot of their numbers, and this is going to be, I think, tested tonight against Houston, so we'll see if that's going to be the case. Uh, The Jazz have been fine defensively. If you want their defensive numbers from an efficiency standpoint, 108.8 points per 100 possessions uh, allowed in non-garbage time minutes. That's solid. However, um, two things stick out. One, giving up a lot of offensive rebounds. Offensive rebounding rate allowed at 35.1%, so they're not rebounding the ball very well. And the other is they are getting cooked in transition by a lot. Uh, Right now, opponents adding 6.6 points per 100 possessions to their offensive rating through transition offense against Utah. That is the worst rate in the NBA through this early portion of the schedule. Opponents are getting out and running, too. 18.4% 18.4% of opponent uh, trans, or excuse me, uh, possessions are starting with a transition play. That is, at, again, 23rd in the NBA. So teams are getting out. They're ripping and running. In terms of overall defensive rating in transition, Utah, 136.8. That is 23rd right now, according to Cleaning the Glass. It's a relatively high rate in terms of points per play. And if you look at the numbers, because uh, Cleaning the Glass does a great job of separating it, right? Because let's say, especially through this early portion of the year, you know, you could have a really poor defensive rating in transition if you're turning the ball over a lot, because if you're just turning the ball over more often than not, um, you're giving up an easy bucket on the other end. Well, they separate it into off live steal or off steals and off live rebounds. Off of steals, the Jazz, as expected, have been very poor. Off of live rebounds, though, they have been just as poor, if not worse, in terms of overall efficiency. So what does that tell you is that they are failing to get back once a possession ends for them. Off of live rebounds through uh, in transition, defensively, opponents are adding 2.5 points per 100 possessions against Utah. Offensive rating going 125 at a frequency rate of 39.4%. That tells you that opponents are grabbing the ball, they are running, and they are having success in early possessions against Utah. I don't think that's really sustainable. It's why I took the shot with Houston here. Because again, going back to home court, we're talking about being about four points better than a Houston team that the market said was equal and or better than them before the season began. And also a Houston team that through the early portion of the season has played very well in transition. And while not high in terms of the frequency, has been very efficient. And that's going to be a test for Utah. So as we're talking about this for the Jazz, like, yes, it's not really sustainable. I think we all understand this. It's a hot start to the year. Sometimes the cards fall in your favor as it did in the Pelicans game. But I think we're going to start to see after this 3-0 start, after this game against Houston, and maybe it starts with this game against Houston, that the Jazz might start to turn into a pumpkin. There are some indicators here, and I don't think anybody listening to this would really be surprised given what we thought about the Utah Jazz coming into the season. Uh, There are some indicators here 
that the Jazz are going to start to fall back down to earth. And also, I mean, to be fair as well, because a lot of people were getting all gung-ho about Colin Sexton after the first game and uh, miss, by the way, the misinterpretation of the bull thing with him and Nikola Jokic, where he was wiping the moisture off the soles of his shoes, but people thought he was like charging like a bull. Uh, But Colin Sexton has been a little inefficient after the first start of the uh, season. And uh, we'll see how it goes going forward, but he has not been, I think there's been this narrative after the first game that he's been this incredible player. It's not really been the case uh, for the Utah Jazz. So we'll see. Look, maybe Lowry Markinen can keep this up for like the first 20 games of the season. I highly doubt it. Uh, and keep in mind, too, as the season goes along, if we get closer to the trade deadline, players like Mike Conley, Malik Beasley, uh, these are going to be guys that probably are on their way out for the Utah Jazz. They want to get traded off. They're not going to be part of the future going forward. They have some assets tied to them uh, that the Jazz believe they can get, specifically first-round pick. I was reading one report. They think they can get up easily. So this is going to come back down to earth via via trade or just because I think there are some indicators that this team uh, does have some rough starts in it. Uh, Philadelphia 76ers. Let's go to the other side of the coin here when it comes to some extreme starts. The Philadelphia 76ers, my team, I mean, on this very podcast, I wrote about it. I'm high on Philadelphia uh, from the standpoint of their overall um, nature as a championship contender in the NBA. Off to a terrible start so far. 0-3 straight up, 0-3 against the spread. And here's the thing that you really don't like. It's that when you look at the way that they have failed through the first three games, it comes in almost every single facet of the game. What I mean by that is against the uh, Boston Celtics. Their defense was absolutely terrible, gave up an offensive rating of well over 130. And while their defense, their offense, yeah, no, excuse me, their defense was terrible. Sorry, I think I misspoke there. Their defense was terrible, gave up an offensive rating of well over 130. And their offense put up an offensive rating in that game of 119, competed very well. Uh, you would think on the surface, like, all right, well, one game, if Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are going to combine for 70 points, uh, it's hard to beat them. Let's just hang them up and we'll come back at it another day. However, it's not just that game. We just watched over the weekend the San Antonio Spurs, albeit via a three-point shot that's been really hot over the course of two games, put up an offensive rating of 122.6. So their defense has failed them in two losses. In their game against Milwaukee, their offense completely fell off the map. 93.5 was their offensive rating against Milwaukee. And their bench has been an absolute nightmare. It's supposed to be much better, but only 11.3 points per game, shooting 40% from the floor. And the worst part about all of this is Joel Embiid has looked lethargic. He has looked out of shape. If you go back to that Celtics game, he clearly wore it at the end of that contest, and they lost the minutes in which he was on the floor. That is never a positive when your best player and you're losing those minutes because very least, just like the 76ers did last year, you should win those minutes. And we hear after one of the games, according to – Joel Embiid that, oh yeah, by the way, oh, I, I've been deal I was dealing with plantar fasciitis in the off season. And that is, that's affected my conditioning so far. Like what? That you're, you're, so we're dropping this now after an own three straight up an ATS start, because it's clearly looked like you've had some issues getting up and down the court. Now, all of a sudden we're hearing about Joel Embiid and plantar fasciitis and how he's been dealing with it and dealt with it in the off season. He swears up and down that it's not uh, bothering him anymore, but it's never really great when you hear some of these stories from teams who are off to disappointing starts. With Joel Embiid on the floor so far this season, it's only it's only just over 200 possessions, but a negative 7.3 uh, net rating. Negative 7.3. They're outscored by 7.3 points per 100 possessions when he's on the floor. A defensive rating of 117.3. It is stark. Uh, the stark kind of opposite of what they were last year without him. 
that is a real with him on the floor. That's a really big problem. That's obviously a really big problem. And if he's going to have to work up his conditioning because he missed time due to plantar fasciitis, I want, I'm not going to say that this rough start is going to extend for Philadelphia again today here on Monday, as we record this, they are 12, 12 and a half point favorites against Indiana. Um, but maybe the, the grand scheme, the grand scheme of things where I thought this team could compete for a one seed, because I'm not going to come off the prior. So this is going to be a competitive team. But the thought that this team was going to win a whole bunch of games and maybe grab that first seed in the Eastern Conference might not be as um, might not be a reality here, given the fact that if that's true and he's got to Joel Embiid work his way back up in terms of conditioning in this early portion, that's a really big problem for a team uh, that I thought was going to win a lot of games. We should also point out too two things. One, uh, P.J. Tucker has not really been as advertised early on. He hasn't been as dynamic defensively uh, with him on the floor, negative four net rating. Uh, and all these numbers, again, through a small sample size, are going to have like some similarities, right? Joel Embiid on the floor, negative 7.3. P.J. Tucker on the floor, uh, negative four. But Tucker, if you watch him with your eyes, has not been the same defender at all. Has not been as effective uh, as a shooter either so far, especially when it comes to some of the corner stuff. And uh, this will, I think, all improve with more time, uh, but it is somewhat of a problem so far for P.J. Tucker defensively and offensively. So this is just a little bit of a disappointment. I would say one of the things that you really don't like is the fact that this bench has looked really bad. The Anthony Melton, I thought, was going to be a much more impactful scorer, and he could maybe get a little bit better. But what I really didn't like, especially in that Spurs game, there were multiple possessions where Montrezl Harrell's playing, like, again, that lazy drop coverage. Guys are just walking into open threes. Like, there's playing drop coverage but still being active, and there's just doing what Harrell does at times or what DeAndre Jordan does at times, where you just park yourself on the free throw line and you just watch a guy step into a wide-open shot and do nothing about it. And Harrell has done that quite a bit in the possessions that I have watched while also not being the effective scorer that they expect him to be. And if he is going to be that, that's a really big problem. And as I mentioned, I think I was relatively fair of the preseason, the preseason uh, measurements of this team. Uh, you know, you figured backup center was going to be a little bit of an issue for them just because while Harold gives you something offensively, he is a negative defensively, and that still looks like that's going to be the case. And I would expect uh, that backup center is maybe something they address at the trade deadline coming up this year. Uh, but not a great start. Doc Rivers and uh, the 76ers, Doc, of course, complaining about his players as he usually does, uh, saying that the offense was late into possessions against San Antonio. Harden, uh, they're very reliant on Harden early. Tyrese Maxey's been fine, but Tyrese Maxey uh, has been a just just out there considering what he gives up defensively, especially in that Spurs game, uh, really negates what he does offensively because how poor he can be on the defensive end. Just a bad start for a good team is what I'm hoping at least because I, I really believed in this. But I will say, and this is the last note on this, again, as we're only talking about three games into the regular season, this is also what I mean when we talk about investing in teams from a preseason futures standpoint. You know, it, it let's, there's certainly, with 79 games left, a very good chance that the Philadelphia 76ers ultimately become what I believed the Philadelphia 76ers to be. But over the course of the first, like, 10 games, if they get off to, like, a 4-6 and six start, dare, I mean, what if we say a 3-7 and seven start? Whatever it is. If this rough start continues, uh, we will start to see the market adjust when it comes to the futures and when it comes to the championship odds for this team uh, right now, for example, right? My buy price on Philadelphia was about 16 to 1. And there was only one shop that really had that up as I was looking through some of the preseason markets. As of right now, 
DraftKings and multiple others already have the Philadelphia 76ers at 16 to 1 to an NBA title. So, like, that's what I mean is there are ebbs and flows to the season. And you always want to sit back and be relatively patient when it comes to some of these uh, some of these futures bets. Because there are some squads, some markets will be cowards, not all of the shops, but some will be cowards and refuse to move off of numbers uh, as the year goes along. The Lakers were one of those last season. Um, but over the course of the sample sizes, as it gets larger, look out. Because if Philadelphia, if they drop to about 20 to 1 or so to win an NBA title, um, I don't really care about the record. I'm in. I'm in on the Philadelphia 76ers to win a title at that price. All right. I want to get to one more team before we get out of here. And really, to be fair, a team that I have not watched a lot of yet, and I'm really going to start to watch a little bit more of them, uh, especially after Sunday and watching them beat the Los Angeles Lakers. That would be the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, but Portland, off to a 3-0 straight up and ATS start. Uh, they get the win on the road against the Kings to start the year. Uh, they beat the Suns by two at home before hitting the road to take on the Lakers, winning dramatic fashion thanks to Damian Lillard and Jeremy Grant's uh, heroics at the end of that game. But Portland, this is why, and this is why I wanted to talk about them. One, because they're undefeated straight up and against the spread. But also, Portland was one of those weird teams, and I think I've discussed this, whether it be on the podcast, and definitely wrote about it, or whoever asked me about it. They're a team that I really didn't know what to do with. Uh, but I would say, through this early portion of this season, that uh, I kind of have an idea uh, of what this is going to look like, and I don't think that the way that they're playing right now uh, is sustainable, especially when you look at the defensive numbers. Uh, through these first three games, 104.5 points per 100 possessions allowed in non-garbage time minutes. That is the second-best defensive rating in the NBA. Uh, that is not what this Portland uh, calling card is going to be. And this gives you another idea of how this is going to go for them. Uh, I don't have, I wish I had access to second spectrum sports, uh, the, like the numbers that second spectrum has, because they have a lot of good tracking data. Cleaning the glass has something similar though. And I brought this up before uh, they have a metric shooting location, effective field goal percentage. And what this is, is if this team that we're talking about here, it's the Portland trailblazers allowed the league average field goal percentage from each location, what would their opponents effective field goal percentage be? As Ben Falk, who made the site and runs the site, does an awesome job with it, notes, gives us a sense of the efficiency of a team's defensive shot profile. So if you look at Portland right now, in terms of effective field goal percentage allowed, we're at 51.9%. And as I mentioned, the second best defensive rating through three games of the NBA schedule so far, really good defensive numbers. However, if you look at them in terms of allocation, effective field goal percentage, 54.1%, obviously much higher than 51.9%, and that would be 20th in the NBA. So going out on a limb here, uh, the Portland Trailblazers and the way they have played defensively, not exactly sustainable when we're talking about them as a good defensive team. That's going to be a little bit of a problem if they're going to regress defensively, which we kind of expect them to do at this point. And, and we're looking at them from another standpoint. How about wide open three-point field goal attempts allowed? 21% of their opponent three-point field goal per, uh, attempts have been considered wide open by NBA.com tracking data. That would be six feet or further away, the closest defender. And opponents are shooting just 35.1% on those attempts. So in other words, Portland's giving up a decent amount of wide open three-point attempts, but opponents are shooting just 35.1% on those attempts. Again, not something that's sustainable from a defensive standpoint. So Portland, really intriguing start, really intriguing team. A lot of talent that you look at that squad and you're like, hey, I kind of like that guy individually. But all this stuff together, not really sure how it kind of melds up to this point. 
And look, Damian Lillard off to a great start. 34 points per game has looked really comfortable. You like to see that for an NBA star, especially after a really serious injury. He's also, of course, leading the league or leading, uh, leading the team in assists. But this offense has still really struggled without Damian Lillard, clearly very reliant on him. Um, and I just wonder outside of him and Anthony Simons, and the numbers kind of point to it when you look at their offensive rating, again, 108.5 is not very good. And to give you an idea, that was actually their identical offensive rating last year in nine garbage time minutes. You, you do wonder if this defense starts to regress, how bad this gets for Portland, because there's a lot of signs pointing to a regression defensively for the Portland Trailblazers. So uh, those are the three teams really wanted to focus on. You know, to be fair, there are quite a few others, right, that are off to some really solid starts. Uh, Boston, I think the note here for Boston is the fact that offensively, they actually are leading the league in offensive efficiency. But their defense, and we're going to see this tested tonight against Chicago, their defense has suffered without Robert Williams. They are giving up 117.3 points for 100 possessions in non-garbage time minutes. Uh, that is something that we, I kind of expected, not to this degree, but wrote about it on Friday when it came to the daily column. And we have seen it now in two out of the three games. So monitoring Boston defensively without Robert Williams is going to be something to keep track of. Uh, Milwaukee offensively has had a really big um I get we'll call it a chasm between the two performances we've seen up to this point against Philly. They had absolutely nothing. And then against the Houston Rockets, absolutely rolled them, uh, but very banged up at small forward. So we'll see if those injuries start to weigh Milwaukee down uh, when it comes to their certain right now, just two and O start uh, Minnesota defensively has looked solid, but two of those games have come against the Oklahoma city thunder. So again, like as we're talking about a lot of these numbers, I try to reference them a little bit more in terms of the numbers themselves as opposed to league standings because these are pretty um, pretty wild numbers through small sample sizes. But there are little things to monitor for a lot of these teams. How about Memphis getting blown out by the Dallas Mavericks in an ugly game and their offense struggling and needing a massive comeback in the fourth quarter against Houston? Little signs that Memphis is that overvalued team and missing quite a bit in terms of their personnel and depth from a season ago. So I can't wait. Obviously, as the season rolls along, we get larger sample sizes. We learn more. But I thought those three teams really worth uh, – they had some merit in focusing on in a little bit more detail because I think there were some more signs either pointing to their success or failures uh, as they expand their sample sizes and play a few more games. So a reminder for all of you, again, vcin.com slash subscribe. Daily columns are up. vcin.com slash JVT. Daily market reports will be up. Uh, they will be up on the weekends as well. There's a little bit of mix-up in communication on my end uh, with the superiors that be. Uh, but we have decided that weekend reports will be up too. So Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all up there. And of course, make sure you join us here on Hardwood Handicappers. Like, rate, review, subscribe. We will talk to you later in the week when Kelly Bidlin's with us.